This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Recollections Radio. Monday morning tea time is now all about sharing memories with you, old and new, of life in Dunedin. Bringing you stories, interviews and music from times past and inviting you to share your memories with us. Presented by Jill Bowie and Kay Mercer, the team behind Dunedin Public Library's Scattered Seeds Archive. Thanks to generous funding by the New Zealand Libraries Partnership Project. Recollections Radio, Monday mornings at 11 on 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Good morning to you and welcome to another episode of Recollections Radio. Jill can't be with us today. She's busy working on the next Reed Gallery exhibition, so you've just got me. Jill has selected the music for today, so we'll start off with this classic tune by Debbie Reynolds, Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor. You might recognise it's from Singing in the Rain. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say good night. So good morning. Good morning. Sunbeams will soon smile through Good morning, good morning To you and you and you and you Good morning, good morning We've gabbed the whole night through Good morning, good morning to you Nothing could be grander than to be in Louisiana In the morning, in the morning It's great to stay up late Good morning, good morning to you Might be just as zippy if we was in Mississippi When we left the movie show The future wasn't bright But came the dawn, the show goes on And I don't want to say good night Don't say good morning Good morning Rainbows are shining through Good morning Good morning Bonjour Bonjour Buenos dias Buenos dias Bonjour
Good Morning from Singing in the Rain. And Jill chose that because she first saw that on the big screen at the Regent Theatre. And that's a timely reminder that the Regent Theatre book sale is still happening. That finishes on the 10th of April, so you've still got uh, just under a week to go along there. We have to book to go to the Regent book sale this year because of the uh, COVID restrictions. So just to keep everyone safe, you can book a one and a half hour time slot to go along and enjoy browse through the books because they're limited as to numbers who can attend at any one time. You have to book online. So if you go to www.regenttheatre.co.nz, you'll be able to find the booking information there and more details and you can book your slot. So get in quick if you still want to head along to the Regent book sale. Well, you might remember a few weeks ago, we started the Folio project where we're collecting the memories of Dunedin folk about their experiences of the polio epidemic in the 1950s. Um, so as part of that project, we have sent out some response forms to libraries where people can write down their memories or they can write down their contact details so we can get in touch with you and follow up. So what we're asking is for you to contribute any memories you have of that time. You, you don't necessarily need to have been a sufferer yourself, but you might have a family member or a friend who contracted polio or you might just remember what it was like living through those times. You know, there were lockdowns pretty similar to what we've had recently. Isolation periods. What was it like at school? Do you remember queuing up your vaccination? That sort of thing. So if there's any memories you have at all about that period of time, we would love to hear from you. So we can add those stories to our archive, though. We'd love to hear from you. So look out for those boxes. They've got posters to explain what project's all about and you'll see some forms there with a little bit of space you can write on or again as I say you can put contact details and we'll get back to you. And the wonderful people in the library's home services team also got in behind this project and they have sent out uh, the response forms to care homes in the region and also they'll be putting the, the response forms in the bags that go out to our homebound customers. So if you do spot those in your book bags or if you if, if you see them at your care home, then do feel free to contribute your memories. You really do have the best memories of that time. So we want to collect those if we can. Please don't hesitate to take part. The other thing I've been working on this week is the history of the Chinese garden. So how it came about, what the idea was behind it. And I've been making a timeline of the building of the Chinese garden. And I've really enjoyed finding out all sorts of fascinating facts and figures about the build, how it got started and everything. Um, and one thing I found out was that Chinese immigrants, when they arrived in 1865, they regarded Dunedin as lucky. It was a lucky city because of its oct octagon. Because apparently in Cantonese, the pronunciation of the word for the number eight, because oct octagon being eight-sided, is similar to the sound of the character that forms the phrase to prosper or to grow wealthy. So that was very auspicious if you were coming here to be a gold miner. So that's why a lot of people were attracted to Dunedin and obviously the interior mines. Now back to the building of the Chinese gardens. The other thing I found out, building contractors had to use more than six metres of fill to stabilise the land that the Chinese gardens now stand on and that's because it's obviously on reclaimed land a lot of that is reclaimed land down that way down by the uh, railway line there so six meters is pretty deep and they had to wait until it stopped sinking and they definitely knew it wasn't going to sink anymore they had to just keep putting more and more fill in until they knew that the land would be stable enough to then build the Chinese gardens 
That's because the Chinese gardens, is, is there's a lot of tonnage in it. There's a lot of tonnage. Part of it is a mountain, for example, which I'll come to in a minute. All of the structures for the garden were prefabricated in China in a place near Shanghai, and they were shipped over to Dunedin in 102 separate shipping containers. But despite that, everything being in 102 separate shipping containers and a massive amount of materials, the garden itself took just six weeks to construct. And in fact, no nails were used throughout the entire build. The whole structure is built with mortars and tendon joints, and that apparently gives it greater stability. So you won't find a single nail in the whole structure. It took 240 cubic metres, think about that, of Chinese fur to build the wooden parts of the building. And it has 380,000 roof tiles, all of which were handmade. I find that absolutely incredible. And the way the roofs are made is amazing as well. It's a special Chinese technique so that the roofs can withstand that amount of weight of all the roof tiles. So amazing construction. The climbing mountain, which is the one you've probably seen that beautiful construction of the mountain there with the waterfall cascading down the side if you've ever been it's certainly worth a look if you haven't been it's beautiful and that was built by master rock craftsman Gu Bao with just two assistants so three men built a mountain and it's made of 970 tons of stone from lake tai and that's a, a lake about 100 kilometers from shanghai and that stone arrived in 40 separate shipping containers. Then there's a zigzag bridge that is made of 130 tons of granite and also two tons of coloured pebbles were laid into the paths and the paths were all laid by hand by visiting Chinese craftsmen. There are over 2,000 plants inside the garden. 90% of those are grown in Dunedin and there are around 1,000 plants outside the walls of the garden. Now another amazing thing is that some of the trees have been artificially aged because I wanted the trees to resemble aged trees to give the garden a sort of sense of um, eternity or it had been there for a long time. So they artificially aged the trees by shaping them as they grew with wire, a bit like bonsai trees, I suppose. And their foliage has been given a patina with various treatments to suggest great age. They're actually really quite young trees. And then there's the Pai Lu, which is the commemorative arch, the beautiful commemorative arch out at the, the garden entrance, which sort of stands by itself. And that's got four dragons on its roof, and they are to protect the garden from misfortune and evildoers. And the two stone lions at the base will scare away demons. So once you're through that archway, you're pretty safe. Now, the garden itself was given as a gift by the Chinese community to the people of Dunedin. The concept took around 10 years to come to fruition, but it is a beautiful gift and I encourage anyone, if you haven't been already, to go and visit it at least once. It really is a beautiful, special place. So I think this next track that Jules selected for us is really appropriate since the garden was such a long time coming, but really well worthwhile. It's called You Make My Dreams Come True by Hall & Oates.
Oh, that takes me back to my misspent youth, Daryl Hall and John Oates there. And now I think it's probably time we introduced our special guest today, Sarah Gallagher. Jill had a lovely conversation with Sarah just a few weeks ago, and this is them talking about Sarah's project to bring to fruition over a very long period of time. It's a massive project, the Scarfies Project, recording the details and the histories of all the different Scarfie houses that students have lived in over the years and how they got their names. So this is Jill and Sarah Gallagher. I'm excited to be joined today by Heritage Assessment Advisor, author and former librarian and Scarfy Flats aficionado, Sarah Gallagher. Thank you for chatting with me today, Sarah. You're welcome. I'm really interested in your role as a Heritage Assessment Advisor for Heritage New Zealand. What does your role involve? Right, I am one of a number of listing advisors. So I am a Heritage Assessment Advisor, that's my job title. (laughs) What I actually do is I, I look after the Heritage List. So the list is something that under our Act, the Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Taonga Act 2014, that is something that we as an organisation are supposed to keep, maintain and develop. And the list includes places that are of cultural significance to to all New Zealanders. And it can include all kinds of interesting things. The main criteria is that it's fixed to the ground. So it must be fixed to the ground. That's interesting. Yeah, so boats, boats, unless it's a shipwreck... Oh, okay. Can't be included on the list. <laughs> but we've got things from castles to cottages, toilets, telephone booths, bridges, all kinds of parks, landscapes, jetties, houses, the ugly, the magnificent. It encompasses all kinds of things. So are you on the road quite a bit going to look at these places? I can be, you... yes, which is one of the absolute joys of the job. Because yeah. does it give you access to buildings that otherwise you might not be able to... Oh, absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, great. for example, Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Taonga own, I think it's 45 places around the country, wow. which we own and look after. And some of those are open to the public, mm. like Hayes Engineering, uh, like Tortora Estate and Clark's Mill there in our area. Mm. Some are rented out, uh, like, for example, we own, I think it's the Invercargill Provincial Chambers and that's rented out as a shop. Oh, wow. And, and then there are others that aren't currently open to the public or are being developed. One of the new ones on our, in our stable properties is Kate Shepherd House in oh, Christchurch. Yes. But the vast majority of places that are listed are owned by members of the public. So they're people's homes. Oh, wow. So they're not available for people to go and knock on the door and say, hey, I want to have a bit of a sniff around. Yeah. So if people uh, live in a heritage home and yes. they, say, decided they wanted to sell the house, yes, yeah, would they, is there quite a big process to... Well, no, it's just a matter of people being notified and real estate agents, mm. you know, making sure that they do include that as part of the package of information. The list is available online, so anyone can see it. Our list has changed a lot over the years in terms of how we sort of report on places. So the way that it works now is I have to write quite a big piece of work when something is is newly listed and so there's a lot of information we're telling the story of that place you know from the land up so it tells the early history in terms of Māori occupation of that place that may be quite broad or it may be quite specific it really depends and then it will tell the history of that place from before it became significant while it was significant and it assesses the heritage values of that place and they could be things like architectural value 
which is probably the one that people think is the most important and is always relevant, but it's not. Okay. Aesthetic, that's what we're talking about. Intangible things like the feeling of a place, the, the light in a place. There's technological, scientific, spiritual, social, cultural and traditional values as well that we can draw on. A place doesn't have to encompass all of those things, but it has to encompass at least one. God, what a fascinating job. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning just, so much. That's just it. You know, you'll be able very, to yeah. walk around the city and just say, oh, you know, yeah. such a mine of information. It'll be amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So one of your other um, fascinating projects and long-running projects was uh, documenting the history of the named student flats in Dunedin. So how did that project start off? Well, that started when I was, I was actually working at the Law Library at the university and I was doing my Masters in Library and Information Studies through Victoria oh. University of Wellington. So I was doing that by distance and I was working full time, which was a mission. I was going to say, yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> and this was, this started off just as an assignment within a paper called Print Culture of New Zealand. Ah. You might find this is a bit weird, me working for Heritage New Zealand, I never studied history. <laughs> I studied ancient history, I studied ancient oh, art and architecture, yeah. but this particular project was my gateway into New Zealand history through print culture. Yeah. And so it was really, we were doing a, a, an assignment about ephemera, and I went to see George Griffiths down at Otago Heritage Books, which is close to where Scribe's Bookshop oh, used yes, to be on Great King Street, and... Um, and he was very helpful and he gave me some things to look at. And then, um, so this assignment was about creating an exhibition, a pitch for an exhibition to explain what ephemera is to the public. And I, you know, I used to walk through campus every day to get to work at the, what was the Hocken building at the time, it's now the Richardson building, category one historic place. And, um, <laughs> and I realized as I was walking through campus, I was seeing, you know, student flat signs and realizing that I was, seeing an ephemeral print culture. Because it's not something that you would think of as ephemera because you think of tickets or yeah, you know, posters exactly. and those kind of things, yeah, but yeah. actually things on buildings. Yes, yeah. yes. And so I, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll, I will do a study of this. And it was a group project. My colleagues were up in Wellington doing the full-time course. Ah. And so they took on one part of the project and I said, right, I'll do a field work here in Dunedin. So I picked up one of those maps, you know, those ones that used to be available on the library desks at oh, the university. You yes, probably yep. had them here too. <laughs> and I drew an outline of the main sort of campus area. And I went with a friend who had a black van called Stealth. She came down <laughs> from Auraki Polytech. And my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, we got in this van and we had the map and I had a notebook and I had my single lens reflex Pentax Emi Super <laughs> camera and we drove every street oh. on the map which was basically between George Street, Harbour Terrace, Brook Street, Duke Street and I think Frederick Street. Oh, yeah. I think that was basically the boundary or maybe Albany Street. So we drove all of those streets and I took photos of every single flat with a sign and wrote down the address mm. and so I had some basic data and then I built a database. And <laughs> yeah, and was looking at the signs, what the names were, what they were made of, and so looking for commonalities and themes. And then I just didn't stop <laughs> for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. That is a long project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but then the technology that I used changed over the time well, as well. Well, that's what I was going to say, because did you go overseas for a while and then you I come did, back? I did, yeah. yeah. So the we were overseas timing's for, everything. yeah, about three years. But, you know, even when we came back for a visit, because Steve's family here in Dunedin, I'd go down and I'd have a look around. And I wouldn't necessarily be as systematic as I had been that first time, but every time I saw a flat, regardless of whether I had recorded mm. it or not, I'd take another photo because I'd see how the signs changed over time. yeah. And sometimes they disappeared, and sometimes they had basically fallen apart and been remade. <laughs> and sometimes they moved. Oh. Sometimes they moved properties. Oh, I never expected that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so there's a few examples of that. So, yeah, that was really interesting to sort of see this ebb and flow in particular streets where it becomes quite popular to have a name. Mm. And then that might move to another place. And then particular streets name their flats in particular ways. Yeah. And there have been particular themes over time as well. Mm. So did the did some of the buildings get demolished in the time that you're away, or did oh, they? Uh, yes, and, and I mean, and that continues mm. as well. There's always things sort of coming and going. Yeah, yeah. could be quite sad sometimes. Well, yeah, some definitely, yeah. definitely. But then, you know, in having the job that I do now, mm. I've sort of realised that actually this is. That's actually quite an important record. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, for 20 years, you've documented. Yeah. You know, it's such an amazing resource. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. quite incredible, really. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So was Facebook sort of the main way that you sort of tracked down former occupants of the flats? Well, or? yes, because initially it was quite... Um, I mean, it's always been an observational study, mm. and initially it was about taking the photo of the sign. It was all about the sign. And then when I was starting to look at the themes that the names were yeah. bringing up it was like oh this is interesting and because I was you know still of that similar age I was still kind of part of that zeitgeist yeah. so I understood the in jokes <laughs> I don't now sadly what web 2 technology afforded was the ability to actually be able to interact online mm. with people and my first foray was because Obviously, I'd moved, from a digit, moved to a digital camera. It was all very exciting because mm. I was very into taking photos. And then Flickr started. Oh, and I scanned my hard copy photos and put them online and routinely uploaded new photos and formed a group. And then some people joined it and they added, you know, added some information. I think it was DSIR, the Department of Student Inebriation Research. <laughs> Flat you love down the name? on, yeah, oh. yeah, down on Union Street. Right, yeah, know. it's still there. Well, the sign isn't there anymore, but flat is still there. Mm. And um, these guys got in touch, and and that was amazing. And they posted some of their photos. And then I thought, oh, this is this is really interesting. And then when Facebook started, I thought, okay, I'll set up a Facebook mm. group. Well, and that started going quite well, and got to about five hundred members, which doesn't sound like very much now, but in sort of you know two thousand seven, two thousand eight, yeah. that was doing okay. And I suppose it's quite actually. a niche kind well, of. Well, it is quite group, niche. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, and people were saying, oh, Sarah, you should really think about doing a book. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, maybe when I get to a thousand people, then that's you know that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for a book. Yeah. You know. And then there was an opportunity through OUSA to do an exhibition at Art Week, and so. I think that was 2009. And so I had a number of the, about, oh my gosh, quite a few, maybe 20 or so photos printed mm. and had them up and wrote text and everything. And, and that went down really well. And there was an article in the university magazine and that brought comments oh, okay. in, that brought people in. And I realised that I really, I guess I was sort of doing it anyway by publishing things online. I just needed to have a very open 
research mm. methodology because I couldn't go and look up a book about student flats. It was like actually trying to find information was reading indexes of things or trying to find memoirs of people that have been around this certain time that were talking about particular things. And so it was quite, yeah, it was serendipitous yeah. <laughs> research, really. And so in order to get first-person accounts, sort of needed a bit of media coverage and interest, which thankfully people were interested in and very generous to, you know, put me in the paper and stuff like that. But yes, the um, that first magazine article was fantastic. Like someone got in touch with me who'd been flatting in the 1930s and they were in wow. the first flat that I'd come across, which is still the oldest flat oh, really? yeah. that I know about. Yeah. yeah. And it was one of the original residents and he couldn't remember very much, but he put me in touch with one of his flatmates a man called Fergus Hume, who at the time was in his 90s, (laughs) and he was still driving around Tauranga, providing pastoral care to his community. And he sent me, I wrote to him, and he wrote me back, and he sent me a piece of letterhead from the flat. They had their own letterhead (laughs) with a crest and a motto in Greek. (laughs) They really took it seriously. Oh, very much so, very (laughs) much so. And then it was sort of like, you know, this is very, you know, my hypothesis had always been that it was really about sort of forming forming identity, yeah. you know, having a name. Mm. and um, But this really sort of solidified it. And so, yeah. it, it, actually, it was very powerful, this particular flat. You know, they, they none of them could afford halls. It was the Depression. No. There were only four halls in Dunedin at the time. And the majority of these students were divinity students, so they were actually studying up at Knox. So they came from a very sort of social conscience mm. background. And, you know, the way that they could propel themselves forward in life was to sort of join together yeah. and pull their resources. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, what a great story. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> Who would have thought you did someone 90 years old would still be, you know, in touch with those flatmates? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they saw each other through all kinds of, um, you know, amazing times. Yeah, that's that's quite beautiful, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I have friends that I was um, at university in the 90s. And so my friend, she was at the Bogan Crack. Creek flat. Oh, was she? Yeah, and I always remember I was living in Clyde Street. Yeah. And we arrived early and then we sort of decided to open that flat up and it was before it was Bogan Creek but uh, and going through the front door and there were fleas everywhere oh. so we think possibly a cat maybe had gotten in oh, over the summer no. <laughs> and I always struggled going back into that flat afterwards yeah not not the nicest oh nasty <laughs> nasty it was the first time I had seen fleas and it was like we did clear them out but it was a bit oh, of a horror show yeah <laughs> Did you did you ever get into inside some of those flats? Like, did you? Oh, I went into. I was invited into Moe's once, which was quite a famous flat on Clyde Street. I don't know if you recall it at oh, all. I saw the. I was just looking at the book, and I saw the yeah the yeah. photo of the yeah. If we think it was a Simpsons. Yes, connection. yeah. So Moe's reference to flat to Moe's bar. Yeah, it was supposed to be called Flaming Moe's, but apparently the flatmates never got around to doing the bit of the sign that said flaming <laughs> that survived for decades yeah. with a sign until fairly recently because there's become a bit of a thing with red carding that nicking a flat sign is, is uh. one of the options and I think I remember there was a group of young women who had rented the flat and they were very excited to be in Mo's very excited there was a sign and then it got stolen and they said they just couldn't be bothered putting it back up because oh, it would just get shame. nicked again which yeah. was a bummer but it may come back again yeah. you know, I've seen things disappear for a long time and then come back <laughs> 
like the Greasy Beaver Lodge was it, it disappeared for about 10 years exactly, and then it made yeah. a resurgence. It's interesting how the, obviously the legend of the flats continues yes. and then they come back again. Yeah. yeah. And then as someone that is sort of researching in this area and publishing quite openly, you know, photos mm. and things, you kind of think, oh my goodness, am I influencing this? Oh yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah. So they could get into Dunedin Scarfy Flats book two. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, or it's like, oh, has that sign come back because someone found that that flat did have a True. sign? And yeah. now because they've seen a photo of it, they can... Yeah. So yes, that's kind of strange too. So that's a, mm. oh, I'm, I'm aware that that's a limitation on anything that exactly, I... Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So the, the book Scarfy Flats of Dunedin was the 2000th book that Dunedin Public Library's added to, to our Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature collection, which is quite exciting. It was lovely to be able to celebrate that book because it was so just cool. so great. Yeah. So you wrote the book um, with Ian Chapman. Um, how did you end up joining forces with Ian? Oh yeah, that was really bizarre and very cool yeah so I just I was working in the medical school and I got an email from him out of the blue we didn't know each other and he said oh hey I'm Ian and uh, <laughs> I've got a contract to write a book about Scarfy Flats in Dunedin <gasps> you must have felt sick <laughs> I did I did yeah and uh, he said oh I've just started my research and everyone keeps saying oh you're working with Sarah <laughs> and so uh, can we get together and have a coffee could you imagine if you hadn't been so public about it if you'd just quietly been working away then but you see I'd always worked that way well a Mm. because I needed to but b because it's like well you know if I sort of establish myself as the person that you know is working in this field then Mm. hopefully I won't get gazumped but I nearly got gazumped by someone who doesn't look at the internet no (laughs) so that was really kind of weird but anyway it worked out I kind of went into the meeting thinking it'll be okay maybe Ian's got a different way of looking at this Mm. and maybe he's got a different focus and maybe both these books can coexist and it'll be okay turns out he had the same idea (laughs) and he'd taken a handful of photos but he was just starting on his sort of research I'd already done all of my Mm. well I'd been sort of researching it for a very long time at that point and I would also been I was also sort of publishing a column regularly in Critic as well, which was sort of with the view that I'd build up a body of work that mm. could then go in a book. But I hadn't had I hadn't been successful getting published. No, and of course you he's know, got I'd a publishing sort of, background. He's got a publishing yeah. background, and so it was like, well, he got in touch with his publisher, mm. who was great, and so we agreed we would co-author it, yeah. and it worked out really, yeah. really well. It was a really great partnership. And, you know, we both wrote introductions. We both wrote some particular chapters because the book has got, it's got some sort of thematic chapters Mm. as well as chapters about individual flats. So I pretty much wrote about the individual flats and wrote some thematic, a couple of thematic chapters and Ian wrote a couple of thematic chapters and we had some other people contribute as well. And there's, there's much worse people that you could write a book with. I think Ian, yeah, he's yeah. quite a good friend of the library. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's, he's a yeah, yeah. Great, great guy and he was excellent to work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I mean, yeah, having the power of someone like that to be able to get the book published. So another yeah. kind of serendipitous kind of... Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Yes, yeah, really? I'm very grateful the way <laughs> things worked out. Yeah. yeah. So the cover of the book features the iconic pink flat the door door yes um was there any other choice for cover or was that kind of the obvious well it was funny because part of me didn't want to put pink <laughs> flat on because it's so well known yeah. but that was really a would have been a dumb move <laughs> yeah it was it totally made sense mm. to use it for all of those reasons yeah 
Yeah. It was just, yeah. you know, because I lived about three doors down from it when I was oh, in Oh, did you? <laughs> right. Such an iconic image though, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It was definitely a really good marketing move. Mm choosing that particular flat yeah, yeah. so did because I'm always you know for the underdog I wanted to maybe choose a flat that was really clever and yeah. interesting but it wouldn't necessarily have had the impact that this one did no. yeah and it's such a good story too yeah it was yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 660 Castle Street is was the home to one of you know, Dunedin's most popular or New Zealand's most popular bands would that be the most famous flat or well it probably is now yeah. I think Prior to 660, oh, the other one would be the Scarfies Flat. Oh, of course, yes, yes. Yeah. up on Brown Street. Yes, yes. Because I just yeah. watched that movie again recently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and 660. I mean, it was a wee bit, it was a wee bit sneaky putting that one in in a way because it never had a sign. Kind oh, of a name, no. Never had a sign, no. but it's known as the 660 Flat, just like the Scarfies Flat mm. is known as the Scarfies Flat, even though it's never had a sign. Exactly true. Yeah. And apparently, there's a lot of flats that do get named that don't have signs. You know, or mm. the sign might be inside of the mantelpiece or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or just known as yeah. you know and that's yeah. the thing I mean having a named flat is also a really good way for people to find you as well you know oh, if exactly. you're living one of those it's just you know yes yeah 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 definitely used as a wayfinding tool yeah mm. better than a street address really isn't definitely. it definitely yeah. what did you discover about yeah why people named their flat well I think it it is about fitting in to a community mm. and at Otago at least 80% of the students that are attending are from out of town mm. and so you're kind of coming into this residential campus and this is key as well for why this behavior happens here and why it works here is because there is a residential campus mm. and you have you know you've basically got two if you're talking about you know statistics two area units mm. of where you've got 98% of those people were between the age of 17 and 25. Quite amazing, So it's it? sort of, you know, ripe for all kinds of interesting activities. <laughs> Shenanigans. Yeah, yeah, including naming flats. Yeah. And I must, you know, we've got to keep in mind too that it's still a small number part of the population that do name their flats. Mm. I've got a collection of over 700 names since the 1930s. Wow. But... You know, they're not all there all the time. No. Yeah. So are you still collecting you know, stories yes. from old... Well, I'm still still taking photos, still mapping mm. them on, on my online map and entering them into my database and popping them up on Facebook and the other channels. So if people did have memories from their flatting days of a named flat, can they get in touch with you yeah. and tell their story? How do they get in touch yes. with you? Dunedinflatnames.co.nz Easy. Uh, or dnflatnames on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So what are you working on at the moment? Project well, go? Uh, I'm doing, I've just submitted an article about a man called Frederick Finch hmm. to the New Zealand Journal of Public History. And he built the very last design by William Mason, New Zealand's first architect. Wow. Yeah, just recently found out that he was the builder. It was a, it was actually a, a work project I was working on for a place called Paradise and that place, that house had burnt down oh. and so I had to review the listing, do a new listing. Thankfully, through a woman called Leslie who works at Glenorchy Museum, she told me that Frederick was the builder. And when I started doing some research on him for this report, I discovered he was also a photographer. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and there are copies of his photographs in Hocken and Papa and other places. Don't you love people that yeah. document everything? Yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> and so there are these very, you know, sort of early photos from the 1870s through to the 1900s that he's yeah. taken. Yeah, they turn up in 
interesting collection. Sometimes is Hawkins got some of the glass plate negative. Glenorchy Museum's got some of the glass plate negative. But yes, they they might have been some of the photographs along with you know Muir and Moody and Burton mm. Brothers that actually helped propel the tourism industry. Wow. Don't you love it? It must be really exciting to find oh, another collection yes, somewhere else. Yes. Stumble across them. Yeah. And so I thought, this man's story needs to be told. So I've been, in my spare time, researching Frederick Finch. Wow. And I've just fantastic. finished that article. Yeah. 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 Oh, you see, that's the thing. And, you know, yeah. even maybe on this show, someone might have some knowledge of him. So yes. you never know who turns up in strange places. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, or that's right. Or a relative might sort of come out of the woodwork. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, well, that's wonderful. Oh, well, thank you for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, that was great to hear how that project came to fruition there. Um, lovely to hear how Sarah brought that together in partnership with uh, Dr Ian Chapman. That was a lovely collaboration and so fortunate that that worked out for them both at the same time. It just happened to all come together nicely. So yes, it's a really great book and I encourage anyone to read it. So fascinating history and it's a, a really good memento if you've ever studied as a student in Dunedin or you're curious about those names on those flats. It's a very well put together book. Oh, I think it's time we had some more music now. Oh, let's have this one. This is Tornado by Little Big Town. Thought you'd change the weather, start a little storm, make a little rain. But I'm going to do one better, hide the sun until you pray. Tossing 
It was Little Big Town with Tornado. And I must say, some of those student flats do look as if a tornado has passed through them, don't they? Yeah, then if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you've got some stories to tell us or if you just have some comments to make about the show, we would really like to hear from you. So the number to call is 03474 3690 and ask for K or Jill, or you can leave a message, leave your number, and we'll call you back. Or you can email if you prefer that. That's library at dcc.govt.nz. Or of course, you can pop into your local library and uh, ask one of the staff there to pass on a message to us with your contact details, and we will happily get in touch with you. Now, if you also, if you'd like to have a look at any of the content we've got on the archive that we're building, uh, which, as I have mentioned many times before, it contains the stories of Dunedin. So any stories of any significance there will be added as we go through. And there's quite a collection already of some wonderful old photos. There's uh, interviews on there. There's video and lots of historic details. So do have a look at that. That's dunedin.recollect.co.nz. And of course, you put dub, dub, dub in front of that. Dub, 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 dot dunedin.recollect.co.nz. Have a, a little browse there. And there is a contribution button on the left of the page if you go onto the Recollect site. And you'll be able to join up as a member of Recollect and contribute directly to our website if you've got some comments to make about any of the content on there if you've got memories that they inspire or if you happen to have a bit of information about a photo for example you can add that directly to the site there on the contribute button and all you need to join up is just your name and your email address and uh, we can follow up with you on that uh, what we're really like liking to get, though, as we've mentioned previously, is what we call oral histories. So we'd like to record people talking about their experiences. It's really important that we collect your voices for future generations to enjoy. And it's your memories that really count. It's, it's all very well having something written in a book. But what we're really wanting is your own memories of Dunedin. One idea we had yesterday was Athel Parks, actually, I was chatting to, and he suggested we collect, we collect memories of people's favourite cafes. I think that's an extraordinarily good idea. So if you've got a favourite cafe that you remember that maybe it's passed on now, it's changed hands or no longer there, do give us your memories because that's the only way these places can be remembered. And it's really important to remember that history and what went on there. You know, how, how was it important to you in your life? So that, again, is another great idea. Thank you to Athel for that one. And again, thank you to Sarah Gallagher for her interview today, for giving us time to talk to us about those wonderful Scarfy flats and that great project she's working on. Now, another interesting thing, I've been always researching for my job, and I read an interesting thing uh, about a science experiment that's been going on for many years. I don't, you may have heard of it, but it's called the Beverly Clock. It's a, it, at the University of Otago in their physics department, and it's been running since 1864, which is incredible. It's a clock that has yet to be wound. It's never been wound. It's one of the longest running science experiments known, and despite many attempts and many claims of having built a perpetual motion machine, no one ever has, for one very simple reason. They are impossible. But this comes quite close. It's a device that uses available energy, solar or water, for example, to do its work for it. Not so much a perpetual motion device as a, just a very efficient device. Or you could say it's lazy because you don't need to wind it. And that's the Beverly clock. It's a clock that was invented in 1864 by Arthur Beverly, hence the name. And it's located in the foyer of the Department of Physics at the University of Otago in Dunedin. So you could pop by and have a look if, you, if you're so inclined. It runs on atmospheric pressure 
and changes in the temperature. It's got an airtight box inside the clock and that expands and contracts throughout the day, pushing on a diaphragm. So it's almost like it's alive, like it breathes. It takes only a six degrees Celsius temperature variation over a day to raise a one pound weight an inch. And this in turn powers the clock. So it really does power itself. So despite having never been wound, the clock has stopped running a couple of times due to mechanical failure or they stop it for cleaning and on a few occasions when the temperature and atmospheric pressure has remained steady for a long period of time. So it can't breathe, if you like. And despite this, because the mechanism continues to function, the Beverly clock is considered one of the world's longest running experiments and is the closest anyone will ever see to a perpetual motion machine. I think that's extraordinary. It's right here on our doorstep in Dunedin. So if you do get a chance to go and see that, do so, because it's very exciting. I think it's time for another song now. Uh, this one has, uh, oh, I picked this one. This one is called Tequila by the Champs. by the champs that was written by chuck rio actually recorded in 1958 it was only a b-side it was really just essentially the band jamming together just a b-side filler really for um the other side of train to nowhere which they thought was going to be the hit but train to nowhere actually didn't go anywhere and tequila became a number one that was on the billboard chart in 1958 so uh, sometimes just a small idea becomes a big one doesn't it 
And on that note, we have been talking to the community boards recently to get them on board, hopefully, with uh, some projects we've got in mind for the various communities around Dunedin. We really want to get ideas from right across the city, Waikoiti to Strathtari. So we'd love to get your ideas, if you have any. And what we're asking for is ideas for a project that we can focus on for the Scattered Seas Archive. So if there's something about your community, if there's a special place, is if there's a particular personality or has been that you, you'd like their history to be recorded, or if there's something your community is particularly proud of or you feel it should be famous for, that's the sort of thing we'd love to hear about. We just want your ideas for what we can create a project for, for the archive that, that you would like us to focus on, to find out the history of, if you can contribute photos, if you can cr contribute commentary about it. We, we'd really like you to get involved in this project. So we're asking the community boards to uh, spread the word for us and to provide support. And what we're planning to do is to bring out our digital archive, uh, mobile digital archive to you. So we'll, it's basically a scanning machine in the back of the car and we'll bring out a little exhibition to show you some of the work that we've already done so you can get a feel for how it could look in the archive. And we'll come along and talk to you about your ideas. And you can use that as a kind of an antiques roadshow sort of visit where you can pop up and bring up photos if you're, you're willing to have those scanned onto the archive or if you've got stories to tell us. Even if you'd like to sit down and chat to us and, and have yourself recorded, that would be wonderful too. So any ideas you've got, you can come along to any of those roadshows. We haven't got dates for them yet, but keep your eyes peeled and we'll be in your locality soon. Right, I think we've got time for one more song. Now, this one is... Chosen by Jill, and she's a huge ABBA fan. So it's Agnetta from ABBA's birthday tomorrow. So if you happen to be listening, Agnetta, if you've tuned in from Sweden, happy birthday. So this is Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.